Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out the Word of God. And it may be a printed version. It may be an electronic version. But in that version of the Word of God, I want you to turn in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter number 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under a chair in front of you. You could grab that Bible, turn to page number 9, and you would find yourself at Matthew chapter 12. Today, as we look into God's Word, we have before us some of the most misinterpreted, misapplied verses in all of the Bible. And those verses center around Jesus' words in Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32. And I just want to, I want to read those. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit... It shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. This concept that we see here has often been called the unpardonable sin. And there have been, over the years, a number of people who've been very troubled by these verses. They, they fret. They begin to wonder, maybe have I committed the unpardonable sin? Uh, They find themselves weighed down by a sense of fear, a sense of of dread, a sense of some guilt. You know, could I have committed this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Could I have committed the unpardonable sin and maybe I didn't really know it? And they find themselves in a sense of being spiritually distraught and even haunted by this prospect. It's been true for many people. For example, there was an English Puritan by the name of John Child, and he was haunted and had this sense of dread that he may have committed this unpardonable sin. And so at one point, he took his own life in the despair that he had committed this sin. You know, when we first started going to Latvia back in the early 90s, at first when it was part of the Soviet Union, and we would have question and answer times, sometimes even with pastor groups, The first four times I went, guess what question came up? Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Uh, You know, they were saying, what is your understanding of this passage? And I don't really know to this day exactly what they were taught historically uh, in that culture. I don't know the interpretation history, but I do know this. It wasn't good because they were concerned. And even the pastors were asking questions about this passage. You know, we're continuing today a series of messages that are entitled First Responders. It's it's about those who first respond to Jesus' ministry as it begins to unfold. And the title I have given to today's message is, What Did Jesus Really Mean? Should I be worried? Should you be worried? And what I want to do is set up a little bit of context, so I want to read in Matthew 12 verses 22 down through verse 32, and I invite you to follow along as I read. It says in verse 22, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. 
and Jesus healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, our plan this morning is to look at basically three things. Number one, we want to examine the controversy that these verses bring up. Then we want to look at the clarification of them. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the good news. I don't know if you noticed the good news, but there's good news in this section. So let's begin by looking at the controversy. Now, before we get to verses 22 to 32, I just want to back up a little bit in the context If you go back to verse 15, it says, after this initial conflict he had with the Pharisees, it says, Jesus withdrew from there. He wanted nothing to interfere with a journey that he was on, which was a journey towards the cross. And many people followed him as he withdrew, and he was healing them. But notice in verse 16, it says, he warned them not to tell who he was was to keep quiet about who he was. Why did he do that? Because he knew the political environment. He knew that if, if people began to get behind him, that it could start this groundswell where they wanted to rally around him as the political deliverer of the nation. That isn't really the reason why he came. In John chapter 7, Jesus often would say, my hour has not yet come. And so he didn't want anything to distract to his journey on the cross. But a little while later, verse 22, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. Now, this man had a trifold problem. He was demon-possessed. He was not only demon-possessed, he was blind And he was mute, he could not speak. Whether those second two things are related to the first, for sure, we're not really clear on it. But he had a trifold problem, and Jesus had a trifold solution to the problem. In fact, again, this points back to him as Messiah in Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 5. It predicted that the Messiah would do these kinds of things. And so this man was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him. 
Not only did the demon leave, but the mute man was able to now speak, and he could now see. Now, this is a noteworthy miracle. And while it is noteworthy, Matthew does not really focus on that. Instead, he focuses far more on the reaction to the miracle. Look at verse 23. It says, all the crowds were amazed. This is very strong language in the original. All the crowd was astounded. We would say in our language, they were blown away by what they saw happen. The demon came out. The man could see. He could now speak. And so they're all amazed. They're all blown away by all of this. And so they began to have these thoughts. This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, by the way, the the phrase, the term, the son of David, is a Messiah term. It's a title for the Messiah. This guy that we see out here doing these things, he, he cannot be the Messiah, can he? And there's a grammatical structure there that would often expect a negative response. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? No way. It's possible that's what they meant. And you say, why are they thinking that way? Well, remember, their expectation in their culture was that the Messiah would come as a military conqueror. He would come with incredible royal fanfare. And by the way, that is part of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, except that They relate to the second coming of Christ and not the first coming of Christ. But as a religious culture, they had selectively focused on just that one aspect of messianic prophecies. And so what they're saying is, this isn't what we expected. This guy, this regular-looking guy here, cannot be the son of David, can he? At the very least, they're expressing doubt. They're, you know, leaning out that he would be the Messiah, But notice the further reaction that happens. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, oh, when the Pharisees heard that people were beginning to wonder, could this guy, this Jesus of Nazareth, be the Messiah? What do the Pharisees do? They start to panic. We might lose the influence. Obviously, he's on a different set of of plans than we are. We could lose our influence. And so they said, you know what we need to do? We need to deflect these people from following Jesus. And so what they decide to do here is really ratchet things up. And what they go to now, while they used to sort of challenge him a little bit, you know, your disciples are doing such and such, why do you let them do that? Now they ratchet it up, they go to outright character assassination. Look at verse 24. Again, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man, this Jesus guy, casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, Beelzebul, that that term is really the name of an ancient Philistine deity, but in, in that day, in that culture, Beelzebul became a nickname for Satan himself. He's only able to do this because he does it by Satan's power. Basically, they were saying, this guy is doing satanic tricks. In fact, we learn in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 3 that they actually went so far as to say that Jesus himself was possessed 
by Beelzebul or possessed by Satan. They said, this guy is not only doing it by Satan's power, he's got Satan residing inside of him. Now, I don't know if you do this when you're doing Bible study, but every once in a while you see things like this and you go, wow, isn't that interesting? I wonder if the critics of the supernatural nature of the Bible ever look at a passage like this. You know, we have skeptics today, and and many of them are in certain seminaries and in certain churches, and what they want to do is downplay and dismiss the supernatural nature of what we see in the New Testament. When they even look into the Gospels, they want to downplay the supernatural nature of the miraculous power of Jesus. Ah, it really wasn't supernatural. But here's what's interesting. Even his enemies acknowledged that something supernatural happened. They knew it was something supernatural. They're just saying it wasn't from God. It came from the supernatural source of Satan. And so the question that they're really raising here is, does Jesus operate by Satan's power? That was the question. That was the accusation. And Jesus has a response for them. And sometimes I'm just, I love the way Jesus responds. I mean, basically, here's what he says to their question. You know, he's operating by Satan's power. He's indwelt by Satan. Here's Jesus' response. That's nonsensical. That's silly. That's hooey. That's poppycock. Those are Hebrew terms I'm bringing out. You know, he's basically saying it's ludicrous. It's preposterous. It's a total absurdity. And he's going to give several reasons why he says that in response to them. Why is it a total absurdity? Well, proof number one is in verses 25 and 26. And basically what he says to them is, look, guys, you've got to be logical here. Be logical. Notice verse 25, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Just be logical. If a kingdom is divided, if there's internal strife, if it's attacking itself, it's destined for destruction. That's just logic. And he goes on to say, a house divided against itself or a city divided against itself will not stand. You know, my my wife and I, a number of years ago, bought a house here in Norman that was built in 1972. And uh, we've never done a whole lot to it, but we're beginning in stages to do some remodeling, some updating of our house. And um, imagine if we did this, we updated, we, we laid, you know, new tile in part of the house. And after we're done laying that new tile, I go out to the garage, I get my 10-pound sledgehammer, and I walk back through the house, and I'm just breaking up all of the tile. I mean, that's just totally illogical because you can't be building something and destroying it at the same time. That's what Jesus was saying. Look at verse 26. He says, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, and how then will his kingdom stand? Now, they knew that the Bible taught that Satan was one of the highest created beings that had been created by God. And Jesus is saying, listen, be logical here. This high intelligent being casting out his own demonic helpers makes no sense. Why would he have his own forces fight against one another? Jesus' response to this question 
of whether he operated by Satan's power is first be logical. But he has a second proof, a second argument that's in verse 27, and that is be consistent, Pharisees, be consistent. He said, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. You know, there, there were these Jewish exorcists, and we see them in Acts chapter 19, and, and they would be involved in these processes of casting out demons and claiming to cast out demons. And really what Jesus was saying is you don't go to them and accuse them of being allies of Satan. Why would you accuse me? You need to be consistent. You need to be consistent. So he says, number one, be logical. Number two, be consistent. And then we come to proof number three, argument number three in verses 28 and 29. He says in verse 28, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Basically, what he's saying to them is recognize reality. Be logical, be consistent, recognize reality. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, and I am, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That means the king is here right now. And I am that king. And then in verse 29, he goes on to say, if anyone can enter the strong man's, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he'll plunder his house. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine that about three houses away from me lives Dwayne the Rock Johnson. All right? You have to use a little imagination here. He lives three houses away from me. And there's one particular day when I show up at his house and he is there. And I show up at his house, and what I do is I ransack his house. I, I know it takes a little imagination. Just, just hang with me. I ransack his house. I carry off his best stuff. I collect all of the stuff. He's still there. I'm walking it out. I throw it into my van. I drive it down three houses, unload it all in my house, come back, get the whole thing. Now, if that happened, I would first have to overpower and bind Dwayne the Rock Johnson. But if that did happen, what would you conclude? Bruce S. is greater than the Rock. I told you it would take a little imagination. <laughs> but that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if I overpowered Satan, what does that tell you about me? I'm greater than Satan. Recognize reality, people. And then he goes on to say in verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. Being translated into today's vernacular, there's no neutral ground, dudes. If you're not with me, you're against me. And then we come to verse 34. It's the big, therefore, therefore, he says, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, 
but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Look at that again. Verse 31, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Verse 32, those who speak against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age of time, space, history, or in the age to come into eternity. It's not going to happen. In fact, in the parallel passage of Mark chapter 3 and verse 29, Jesus calls this an eternal sin. How long is eternity? Forever. An eternal sin would be a sin that is forever. Now, that is the controversy that we have before us in these passages. So let's zoom in a little bit and look at the clarification. And whenever you're struggling with verses that create some confusion and some controversy, remember this. The key is the context. It is always, always, always true. The key is the context. And so we're going to see three specific situations that exist in this context as it talks about this sin. Specific situation number one is this, that Jesus is present on earth performing miracles, right? That's what's happening. Specific situation number two is that the Pharisees personally witness multiple undeniable miracles by Jesus, right? That's another specific situation in the context that exists. And then there is a third specific situation, and I want us to look at the parallel in Mark chapter 3 here, verses 29 and 30. And this is what those verses say. This is just another account of this event. Jesus says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. We mentioned that. And now here comes the key word, because. This is the reason why it never is forgiven. This is really the issue contextually because they, these Pharisees, were saying that he, Jesus, had an unclean spirit. That's the problem. The Pharisees cold-heartedly concluded that Jesus was empowered by Satan himself. And so I want us to, to look, taking all this context into play, at a definition of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the definition of the unpardonable sin. Here it is. It is the blatant rejection of Jesus' earthly ministry, attributing his power to Satan, after personally witnessing irrefutable spirit-wrought evidence. That is the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, a blatant rejection of Jesus' earthly ministry, attributing his power to Satan, after personally witnessing irrefutable spirit-wrought evidence. This was, men and women, hard-heartedness to immense proportions. This was inexcusable callousness 
on the part of these leaders. This was as high-handed as high-handed can get. Notice in verse 32 of, of Matthew 12, he says there, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man... Whoever even speaks negative things against the Son of Man, in in his humanity, that's what he was as the Son of Man. He was the God-man. And it's almost like he's saying, you know what? We can understand there might be skepticism about this concept of the God-man, that you have God who's living in a man. I mean, that, that, doesn't that get a little confusing to all of us? I mean, how is God in, in a person, in a human being? I mean, the human being gets hungry. The human being gets thirsty. That's what Jesus did. He got tired. He needed to have sleep. And it just, it's a little tough to get your arms around. And if you're going to speak against the Son of Man and, and, and the God-man and the concept of the God-man, that can be forgiven, is what Jesus says. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, whoever has this blatant rejection of Jesus' earthly ministry attributing his power to Satan after personally witnessing irrefutable spirit-wrought evidence, oh, when there's that that happens, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. There's no forgiveness. That is an eternal sin, both in time, space, history, and through eternity. Now, remember, we're looking at the clarification here. Let's just make a conclusion, the clarification. Here it comes. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, as defined contextually by this passage, listen carefully here, is a unique sin that cannot be duplicated today. You see, it is a sin that can only be duplicated if Jesus was on the earth performing miracles It can only be duplicated if I was personally witnessing multiple miracles, and it can only be duplicated if I cold-heartedly witnessed all of those things and concluded that Jesus was doing this while being empowered by Satan. And so there's this fear that some have about the unpardonable sin. There's no reason for fear. There's no reason for dread. There's no reason to be distraught. I wonder if I could have committed that sin. It is historically impossible to duplicate the conditions of this sin. But men and women, the devil doesn't care. The devil delights in paralyzing people with fear. That's what he likes to do. It goes all the way back through Bible history, even to the time of the Puritans. So we said today we were going to look at the controversy, and then we were going to look at the clarification, and remember the key is the context. But thirdly, I want to look and end today by looking at the good news. Did you notice it? Did you see it? We read it several times. Did it jump out at you? Look at verse 31. Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, here comes the good news, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Any sin, any sinful thought, any sinful deed 
any blasphemy, any statements against God, attacking God, shall be forgiven people. It's, it's what we see in, in the pages of the New Testament. You know, Paul, remember Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, and he says, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. If you go back and you see, you'll notice that he tortured men and women and he murdered men and women. And yet he goes on to say, yet I was shown mercy and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant for me. Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. You see, by nature, God is a God of forgiveness. This is good news. This is very good news. In fact, there is a self-description given of God by God in Exodus 34 and verses 6 and 7. This is what it says. This is God himself describing himself. He says, the Lord God, look at these wonderful good news words, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. I'm telling you, that, that is good news for me. And that is good news for you. How does that happen? Well, it it goes back to the act of what happened on the cross. Think about this. Think about this. There were some people who perpetrated a crime against the Son of God by crucifying and murdering him on a cross. Now, now, if we didn't know the whole story, we'd say, no, that was a dire deed to unjustly convict somebody and crucify them and murder them on a cross. But what did Jesus say from the cross, even as dire as that deed was. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. By nature, God is a God of forgiveness. And the solution and the key to all of that is Jesus' work on the cross. That's why there's a cross over here. It's a reminder that on that cross, he took my place. He took your place. Despite our sinful rebellion, despite our multiple transgressions of his holy law, he took that upon himself and paid the penalty. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is on one of his missionary journeys and he's speaking to the people and this is what he says. Let it be known to you that through him, Jesus Forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. That was good news. Let it be known to you that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, and through him, Jesus, here we come with the key phraseology, everyone who believes is freed from their sin and from the rebellion. You know what this is saying, what Jesus said here? apart from this one sin that was something we can't repeat today, forgiveness is there. Forgiveness is there. He's saying there's nothing so dark, nothing so awful that it cannot be forgiven. 
Go from Matthew to the right, past Mark and Luke to the Gospel of John in chapter number three. There's such great things in John chapter three. It's a chapter that we all ought to read regularly. But I want you to notice John chapter three and verse 15. Whoever believes in him, remember the word believe in the Bible means to count on something, to entrust yourself to something. Whoever believes in him, which means who believes and trusts in this work that happened on the cross, what does it say? Will have eternal life. Verse 16, which we all know. For God so loved the world, this was the motivation, that he gave his only unique son, that whoever believes in him, counts on his work on the cross, will not perish but have eternal life. It's good news. Oh, this is really good news. I don't know how many races we have. I didn't take time to count it up. A lot of different races we have. A lot of different ages we have. But you know what the Bible says? It says there's only two types of people in the world. We're either in this group or we're in this group. Only two types of people from a spiritual perspective. Look at verse 18 of John 3. He who believes in Jesus counts on his work on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins. He who believes in him is not judged. That's one group. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only unique Son of God. That's the other group. Two types of people in the world. So the question is, which group am I in right now? Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Let your eyes go down to verse 36. He who believes in the Son, you know what this is talking about again, and his work, his death on our behalf, taking the penalty, whoever trusts in that, embraces that, counts on that, believes in that, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There's good news for those who want to embrace it. Two groups of people, two different destinies. What's the difference? Our destiny, men and women, is in our response to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. And Father, anyone who may be listening to me who has never yet made that life decision to trust in the work of Christ, not trying to work their way to God, but trusting on what Christ did, they've never yet done that. Would they realize, they realize, even as they're listening to this right now, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, God is ready to help you right now. Today is the day of salvation. We would pray, Father, that they would make that decision in their heart 
to put their trust in what Christ did. And then they can move from one group that has no hope and is under the wrath of God into the other group that has eternal life. For those of us who've already made that life decision, Father, we're so encouraged by what it says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, 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 such great news. We thank you, Jesus, in his name. Amen.